And if you think that judicial power, like other forms of power, can be abused, and if you think that judicial power, like other forms of power, can corrupt, then you want to confine judges just as you want to confine the other branches of government. And the way to do that is to say, you guys are not allowed to rewrite the Constitution. You must stick to what the Constitution has always been. Welcome to Running Meat Radio, your place for a respectful yet provocative discussion of law, politics, and culture in Canada and beyond. I'm Joanna Barron, your host. Uh, today's episode is a treat. It features my friend and celebrated young public law academic Leonid Sirota. Uh, Dr. Sirota currently teaches at AUT Law School in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, and he's also the creator of the celebrated legal blog Double Aspect, which features some of the most rigorous and lucid commentary on Canadian public law and other issues anywhere. Running Mead had the good fortune of catching Leonid on a visit to his hometown in Montreal earlier this winter, where we hosted a discussion on the legal interpretive philosophy of originalism at the Université de Montréal. Uh, we filmed the event, and I will link to it on the blog post where this episode is embedded. In this episode, uh, we ducked into a faculty office at the UDM immediately following Leonid's talk to record. Uh, Leonid and I discussed the group of theories that constitute originalism and the interpretive differences between them, as well as Leonid's view that the Supreme Court of Canada is probably more originalist than it purports to be, the case for and against originalism, um, and probably the worst case of broken telephone in Canadian legal history, the reference repersons, which is, of course, a staple of first-year law classes, and which is frequently and erroneously, as you'll learn, taught as the, a source of the view that the dominant li living tree model of progressive constitutional interpretation. So without further preamble, please enjoy my discussion with Leonid Sirota. So I'm here with Professor Leonid Sirota at Université de Montréal, um, where we just wrapped up an extremely illuminating discussion on originalism and its attended is attendant issues um, in a presentation Leonid in gave entitled um, The Supreme Court of Canada's Dirty Little Secret, Originalism. And Leonid presented his ideas, which were encapsulated in a recent paper, which he co-authored with Benjamin Oliphant, has the Supreme Court of Canada rejected originalism? Um, and that, that session, or at least some part thereof, will be on our YouTube channel. So I will recommend that you view it and post a link to it in the show notes. Um, so Leonid, one thing that came out, first of all, from your presentation is that originalism is really a group of theories and not a single theory. Um, there are various schools of originalism, some have perhaps been discredited. So could you speak a bit about the different strains of originalism and what we're talking about when we use the term originalism? So when originalism was launched as a legal and frankly political movement in the United States in the 70s, the focus was on interpreting the Constitution consistently with the intentions of the framers. And that is now known as the original intent originalism or old originalism. That was criticized uh, quite heavily 
in part by people who said, well, wait a minute, the framers of the Constitution were a large and diverse group of people. And we don't know that they all had one single intent. So to the extent that they had divergent intents, it seems odd and, and wrong to be interpreting the Constitution by looking to any purported intent that they collectively might have had. There were other objections as well. And in response to that, uh, many originalists adopted uh, under, in part, the leadership of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court, others involved in that movement as well, uh, they adopted a new focus for determining the meaning, the original meaning of the Constitution. They said, let's not look to the intent of the framers, let's look instead to what the words that the framers used would have meant to the public uh, at the time the Constitution was ratified. This is known as the original public meaning originalism or new originalism. And this is the most important originalist school today. There are others that we discuss in, in the paper, uh, but I think this is the, the one that's most worth thinking about. Okay, and uh, one of the sort of main upshots of your paper with Oliphant is that in spite of what it says, and certainly there are some aspects of Supreme Court jurisprudence which explicitly reject originalism, um, in spite of what they purport to say, in fact, the Supreme Court of Canada does use originalism and frequently. That's right. So what we find about the purported rejections of originalism in, in the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court of Canada is that they are actually quite rare, more maybe than you might think. And some of the most uh, swinging ones come in dissents. Uh, Professor Newman earlier the, uh, at the talk mentioned the dissent of Justice Binney in a case called Consolidated Fast Freight. And in that case, Justice Binney uh, faults the majority for being originalist. And he says, well, we don't do that sort of thing here. But he's dissenting. And the majority does indeed use a reasoning that is quite close to originalism. Uh, so it's exactly right. Uh, the Supreme Court has occasionally suggested that it won't do originalism. It certainly has said any number of times that it favors a more uh, what they call a dynamic or a, an evolving, a progressive interpretation of the Constitution. But then when, when you get into the cases, you certainly don't find them as consistently originalist, uh, nothing of the sort. Uh, and indeed, we say that they're not consist consistently anything at all. Uh, but you find a great many cases, both on the structural side of the Constitution, Federal Division of Powers, Section 96 cases, cases where the court says it's interpreting a bargain that led to the formation or the amendment of the Constitution, and also charter cases where they use different forms, not always the same one, but different forms of originalist reasoning. Okay, so just to be sort of contrarian and set things out so that we're not just speaking in an echo chamber because you said at the end of your presentation that you are at very least sympathetic to originalist uh, reasoning, if not a flag-wearing originalist. But what is what would you say is the best case against originalism and for what um, we could put under the broad penumbra of living constitutionalism, living tree constitutionalism? What's the What do you think is the best sort of refutation of originalism? It's probably two, two arguments. One would be that 
originalism is unsuited to the fact that the Constitution is intended to last uh, well beyond what its authors, uh, the, the time horizon uh, over which its authors could anticipate things. And so you might worry that at some point uh, this text, if it's not reinterpreted, is going to become obsolete. The other argument is that, uh, and I, I suspect, although I have no direct evidence of that, uh, that this is perhaps what's uh, motivating so many Canadians to re uh, peremptorily reject regionalism, uh, is the idea that judges are not really part of government. Uh, they are not uh, in any danger of abusing the power that they exercise. Uh, and we want judges to be powerful in order to restrain the political branches of government uh, because we see them as intermediaries between us and the political branches and indeed as our defenders against the political branches. And if that is how you see the judiciary, then you probably want the judiciary to have as much power as, as it can, uh, including perhaps the power to adjust or rewrite the Constitution. And what would you say to, so I've, I've heard this sort of, um, sort of unsophisticated, but in, instinctively understandable criticism um, from friends of mine who are fans of an activist court. I call it the sort of the, the cynical objection, which is, look, judges like Scalia and Thomas, who call themselves originalists, we look at the outcomes and they tend to almost universally be conservative, quote unquote, outcomes. They tend to rule in favor of gun rights and against abortion rights and against rights to gay marriage. Um, in other words, this is just a subterfuge for them to hide their policy preferences. So why don't we just put the policy preferences out there, say what we're doing, we're engaging in a social policy function. Well, there's a number of things to, to say in response to that. Uh, first of all, they are interpreting, the American judges are interpreting an old constitution. Uh, Canadian judges, when at least when they are interpreting the Charter of Rights, are interpreting a much more modern one. Uh, so that's if you are really results-oriented, uh, that's one answer that you should take into account. Uh, second thing to say is that although the judges who are originalist uh, in the U.S. have indeed been very conservative, uh, scholars who are originalist fall now didn't used to be the case, but uh, it is the case, has been the case for uh, a decade or more, uh, fall all over the political spectrum. And so you have now in the American literature arguments uh, making an originalist case for abortion rights. Uh, Jack Balkin is uh, the most, uh, the foremost advocate of, of that particular argument. Uh, you have arguments made uh, making an originalist uh, case for uh, same-sex marriage, originalist case for uh, women's rights. Uh, so whether you know other people will dispute the validity of those arguments within the originalist framework, but you certainly don't have to be conservative to be an originalist. You can be progressive or you can be libertarian as well. Uh, so in a sense, are we all originalists now? Well, that's what uh, <laughs> Justice Kagan said. Uh, 
Elena Kagan, of course, who was an, an Obama appointee to the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and that's what Professor Leclerc said earlier today, uh, which was interesting because although I thought I would not mention it, we actually do cite in, in uh, one of our papers, we do cite a paper by Professor Leclerc, who is as critical of originalism as any Canadian scholar has been. So I th uh, it was interesting that he should say that we are all originalists now. Yeah, and I guess what he means is we're all, we all feel compelled as jurists to anchor our legal reasoning in the text because, you know, once that has been drawn attention to, it's just so clearly flimsy. If, if you're not anchoring your reasoning in what the text and what the law says, what are you doing exactly? Well, then you are indeed engaging in, in purely results-oriented reasoning, and some judges are comfortable with that, uh, and uh, hopefully most will not be. So the, the other thing to say about whether originalism is really just a cover for uh, results-oriented, policy-driven driven judicial reasoning is, is that we should note uh, that Justice Scalia at least has voted uh, in many cases in, in ways which do not necessarily align with a conservative, uh, politically conservative worldview. He has voted to uh, strike down legislation that prohibits flag burning very famously and he has voted in many cases in, uh, in favor of criminal defendants because he read the constitutional provisions in the US Bill of Rights that uh, give rights to criminal defendants as they were uh, as they would have been read or as perhaps they were intended to have been read uh, when they were enacted and not in ways that make uh, other political conservatives who perhaps tend to be more of the tough on crime variety uh, very comfortable and as uh, Neil Gorsuch the perhaps future uh, US Supreme Court justice has said, and he is uh, identified also as a, as a public meaning originalist, as he has said, a judge who always reaches uh, conclusions that he or she is pleased with uh, on, on policy grounds is likely a bad judge. Justice Scalia was not a bad judge in this way. Okay, so we spoke, I, I asked you before to identify um, the, the best case you can identify against originalism. So now let's turn to the obvious uh, inverse, which is what what is the best case for originalism? It seems to me that there are a number of sort of, there's a democratic argument and there's a rule of law argument, um, but what do you think is the, is the best case for an originalist approach to legal interpretation? I think the, the best case uh, is to closely related arguments. One is about the rule of law, the other is about the limitation of judicial power. And of course, one of the things that the rule of law does is to limit uh, the power of government, including, I would say, the power of the judiciary. Uh, the straight up rule of law argument is that we think that the constitution is law. We think that the constitution is supreme law. In fact, our constitution explicitly says, says that the constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada. Uh, now, if what, what do we mean when we say that something, including the Constitution, is law? Well, among other things, on any uh, theory of the rule of law, uh, law should be clear, law should be prospective, law should be public. Uh, 
if the Constitution's content can change at the whim of judicial interpretation and reinterpretation, then ca how can we say that the Constitution is public? Or uh, we, we don't know what it means until the judges tell us. How can we say that the Constitution is stable if it's always susceptible of reinterpretation? Uh, and uh, how can we say that it's clear? So this is the, the straight-up rule of law argument. The argument about the limitation of judicial power, which is related, as I just said, to the rule of law, uh, is that adopting a living constitution approach gives, uh, in fact, the judges the power to say from time to time how the constitution evolves. Uh, living constitutionalists use a euphemism, if you will, uh, when they speak of the constitution evolving. The Constitution, despite the living tree metaphor that uh, we like to use in Canada following Lord Sankey in the person's case, the Constitution is not really an organism. The Constitution does not really live and evolve. It can only do so if its interpreters make it do it. And so living constitutionalism gives the power to the judges uh, to adopt new constitutional rules. And if you are concerned about judges, like the other branches of government, you don't need to be more suspicious of judges than you are of the executive or the legislature. But simply, if you are somewhat suspicious of judges, and if you think that judicial power, like other forms of power, can be abused, and if you think that judicial power, like other forms of power, can corrupt, then you want to confine judges just as you want to confine the other branches of government, and the way to do that is to say, you guys are not allowed to rewrite the Constitution. You must stick to what the Constitution has always meant. Okay, so you mentioned the person's case and Lord Sankey's decision in it. Of course, um, when we were in law school at McGill Law, and I, I'm sure you had a similar experience, we were taught the person's case, the uh, Edwards v. Canada reference, three persons are women persons. We were taught that this was the root of the living tree doctrine in Canadian constitutional law. Um, however, in your paper, you outline your, your uh, contrarian reading, um, or rather your, your reading that puts the lie to the dominant reading of the person's case. Can you speak about that? So, so first of all, I, sh I should be very clear that uh, we are not original, uh, as it were, on, on that particular point. We are, are following uh, a paper by uh, Bradley Miller, Professor Bradley Miller at the time, now Justice Bradley Miller of the Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, who wrote more or less the same thing. Other people, more or less anyone who has uh, actually read the person's case, comes to this surprising conclusion that it doesn't mean what we, uh, it doesn't say what we think it says. Including uh, Marshall Rothstein Including, recently at the Supreme Court of Canada. That's <laughs> right. I, right after his retirement, he went to the University of Saskatchewan and gave a talk about the role of the judge in constitutional interpretation. And of course, the starting point uh, of uh, any discussion on, on that topic in Canada is indeed the person's case, uh, which didn't used to be the case, but uh, certainly is uh, the case now. And Justice Rothstein said, well, you know, to be frank, I never read the person's case before I came to prepare this conference. Uh, so I read it. It turns out that it actually doesn't say what we think it says. So the, the story, and, and this, it's a very popular story, it's a story that Chief Justice McLaughlin espoused 
uh, or propounded in, in a talk that she gave uh, here at the Université de Montréal uh, just last year is that in the person's case, the, the uh, question uh, was whether uh, within the meaning of Section 24 of what is now the Constitution Act 1867, which speaks of appointing qualified persons to the Senate, whether those qualified persons could be women who met all the other uh, criteria for being a qualified person. Uh, and uh, the, the story goes that, well, the Supreme Court of Canada has said, no, women aren't persons. And the uh, Privy Council said, no, wait a minute. Uh, whatever was the case in 1867, they might not have thought of women as persons, but the world has changed, our views have changed, society has changed, and therefore, uh, in Chief, the Chief Justice's words, it is time to graft a new branch onto the living tree that is the Constitution, uh, and so, of course, women are persons, uh, and women can be appointed to the Senate. Now, that's not what the uh, person's case actually says. Uh, it's a quite a painstaking decision, and it's a painstaking exercise in uh, statutory interpretation. So, uh, Viscount Sankey says, well, how would the word persons have been understood? How would it have been understood all along in 1867 as well as now? How do we figure it out? Well, we have any number of tools when we are trying to understand a legal text, such as a statute, including, in that case, the Constitution Act. Uh, one tool is how we look at how the, the same word is used in other places in the statute and how are other words used in that same legal text uh, to say something else. And Viscount Sankey uh, finds that the word person is used in other provisions of the Constitution Act in a way that suggests that is gender, neut uh, gender neutral. Uh, and when the authors of the Act wanted to indicate uh, a clearly that they were referring to men, uh, they actually say male subjects and not uh, persons. He also looks at how the word persons is used in other legislation in Canada and finds again that it is usually used in a gender neutral way. He looks at uh, the fact that uh, the law sets out a number of criteria, so the, the framers uh, have turned their attention to uh, what it takes to be a qualified person and they uh, obviously as he has already demonstrated knew how to indicate that uh, someone for some other purpose in the in the law had to be a man uh, and they didn't say here that uh, the qualified person had to be a man and so taking all of that together uh, certainly the all of those different criteria point in the same direction the word persons is uh, gender neutral uh, and, and he uses this uh, sentence. It's, it's a bit difficult to say exactly what work it does. This line that the Constitution Act planted in Canada, a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits. But one way of, of understanding what work it does is to look at the next sentence, which is, it is not uh, this board's intention to cut down this living tree by uh, a restrictive interpretation. So. I think what he might be saying is simply that, well, what the Supreme Court of Canada did, they took an unduly restrictive interpretation uh, and there is no need to do that. There, the word is capable of a broader interpretation 
Uh, and because the Constitution is this uh, long-lasting thing uh, that perhaps has some sort of life in it, uh, is, we should not be cutting it down by picking an interpretation that is narrower than, nece than necessary. So it's just like a terrible game of legal broken telephone, basically, because clearly the, the reading of persons in and of itself has become a guiding interpretive principle in its own right of sorts, I would say. Yes, I th well, it's, it's interesting that the, the person's case was not uh, cited or used in Canada for about 50 years after it, it was decided. And it came to prominence only after the charter was enacted. Uh, and it seems to have become uh, an, a very convenient rallying flag for uh, giving judges more power to interpret the charter broadly. Uh, now, you might think for policy reasons, that in, in, uh, for the reasons that I have suggested perhaps, uh, that giving the judges this power to make broad interpretations and reinterpretations of, of the charter is a good thing. Uh, fair enough, you, you, you can argue for, for that proposition, uh, but the person's case does not support that. And we know that Lord Sankey himself, uh, in a case that uh, in which he wrote the Privy Council's opinion just a couple of years later, the aeronautics reference, actually spoke of the Constitution as this original contract which cannot uh, uh, be whittled down or rewritten by judges in the process of interpretation. So we know that he was definitely not a living tree kind of constitutional interpreter. He was concerned about uh, giving judges too much power. He was concerned that this was going to undermine protection uh, for minorities. And uh, he was what we would now call an originalist. So uh, there is, of course, a tendency for Canadian judges to refer to the person's case in living tree constitutionalism to justify extensions of constitutional rights. However, there's another trend which is uh, more worrying to me. Um, which is exemplified by Justice uh, Rosalie Abella of the Supreme Court of Canada's comment or her, her starting of her decision in the Saskatchewan Federation of Labour case. Her statement was, the day has come for the right to strike to be granted constitutional benediction in Canada. Um, so there's not even um, the facade of an appeal to a doctrine or, or a justifying principle. It's just like a sort of creatio ex nihilo. Um, do you have any comment on that type of judicial reasoning? Well, that's obviously this is, this is one sort of thing that originalism is uh, as a normative theory is meant to guard against. Uh, now, you you perhaps don't have to be an originalist to condemn that uh, that decision and the the other case, the the RCMP case, uh, in in which the uh, uh, right to collective bargaining was uh, to use Justice Abella's word words giving uh, constitutional benediction uh, you you could argue against those cases in any any number of ways uh, I think they were terrible decisions I think they represent an abuse of judicial power uh, and originalism would certainly condemn that but as I said you don't need to be an originalist to uh, to condemn those two cases because they're just because of the problem they pose for the rule of law more generally or the sort of double insult, which is those decisions impose uh, tangible cost based obligations on the state. 
they, they imposed uh, very serious costs on the state. They uh, single out uh, organized labor for uh, uh, having effectively socioeconomic rights. And uh, the Supreme Court has uh, consistently with the original meaning and intent of the Charter's framers uh, rejected or, uh, economic rights uh, for anyone else. Uh, so there seems to be a, just a basic point about equality, about why should organized labor of all, uh, of all people have those rights. Uh, you could also comment on the way that uh, those decisions break precedent. Uh, so there is really any number of, of reasons to reject them, uh, not only original meaning of the Charter, although uh, it certainly seems that the original meaning of the word freedom of association as it was used uh, at the time did not encompass those rights to strike and to collectively bargain. Okay, so there were a number of questions posed to you at the end of the seminar um, uh, here at the University of Montreal that sort of um, centered on the question of, isn't originalism an American idea and basically a bad fit for Canada? And there were a number of reasons articulated for that position, um, but I'm going to step back and look at it a little more broadly. Originalism is a very big deal in the United States. As we mentioned, it's so influential that Elena Kagan has said we're all originalists now. But I can't help but think that part of the reason why it is so influential and so serious is because in the United States, the Constitution itself was a much bigger deal. Um, there was this quasi-biblical moment in which um, this, this document was drafted, which gave birth to a new form of political... Um, political nation. Um, it was very innovative. There's a great amount of folklore around the founding fathers. And we don't have that to the same extent in Canada. Dwight Newman mentioned that we would do well to study and understand um, our own constitutional history better. Um, but that's in the case of the sort of fathers of confederation and Constitution Act 1867 and the original bargain of confederation. In the case of the Charter, it's sort of like, you know, Trudeau had some meetings and, and it's quite a bit more prosaic. So I guess the question is, isn't originalism sort of a romantic ideology in the United States? And that's part of why it's it's gone so far. Um, and given that, can we ever expect it to have serious purchase in Canada? Well, that's an interesting suggestion and, and I'm not necessarily qualified to engage in this sort of sociology, uh, to commit sociology as a prime minister of ours would have put it. Uh, I would say, as Professor Newman, that our constitutional history does deserve uh, more attention and more study uh, and perhaps more reverence than it tends to get. Uh, and some people are working hard to uh, make this happen. Uh, my friend Alistair Gillespie is uh, producing a series of papers on uh, some of the Fathers of Confederation uh, that are being published by the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, that's a great read uh, if you want to get reacquainted with uh, those people who have shaped Canada and, and uh, who were uh, actually more interesting uh, and more and deeper thinkers than we might suspect. Uh, now, I also want to push back against uh, you know, thinking of the framing of the Charter as something that was uh, somehow uninteresting. Uh, 
because it actually involved, unlike the drafting of the Constitution Act 1867, obviously it's a very different uh, different period uh, in history, and it actually did involve uh, very extensive uh, public consultations. Uh, of course, the federal government uh, took the initial lead in the process, uh, but there was a special committee of the uh, House of Commons and the Senate, uh, and many Canadians, many groups, uh, you know, social activist groups, women's groups contributed to those discussions. Uh, needless to say, what, what came out of, of all of that was a, a compromise, uh, like the American Constitution was a political compromise. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we uh, should, I think, have a little bit more respect uh, for our constitutional history. That said, I think the best arguments in for originalism are not the romantic ones. Uh, the best arguments, uh, as I said, are those based on the rule of law and on the ideal of limited government. And you don't need to romanticize the constitutional history in order to believe in those. So I think one of the important things about the scholarship that you and uh, Benjamin are doing is sort of on the meta level that you are elucidating theories of constitutional interpretation, but to some extent, as, as you've noted, already exist, um, but carving them out. And I'm not sure if you had um, the same experience as me. We both went to the same law school, uh, McGill, but I would say there was almost um, a an interpretive subterfuge or a hidden interpretive orthodoxy. I guess hidden isn't a great term because it implies some type of ill intent, but there was just a sort of background assumption that there was only one method of, of constitutional interpretation. It was just the one we were taught, and it was broadly, um, broadly, some form of living tree uh, constitutionalism. But uh, one of the advantages of the American um, study of constitutional law is that there are distinct interpretive approaches, and and that brings sort of a clarity. You know, there's feminist legal interpretation and living tree constitutionalism and originalism and critical legal legal theories. In Canada, it's much more of a sort of mishmash. Have you found that? I think that's right. I think there is, uh, for one thing, uh, there is this, there is a mishmash and uh, and there is a, a sense that, well, we are, we all agree there is only one right way of doing things. Then you look at the cases and you realize that actually what the Supreme Court does from one case to the next can be completely different. Uh, and I, I would not say it's a subterfuge, it's simply unthinking. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, there is simply not enough thought being given to, to what it is that the court does. And uh, that's partly why uh, we end up with, with this mess, really. Yeah, and what you've said is that the only consistency the Supreme Court of Canada has shown is their inconsistency, that they just pick up whatever sort of method of reasoning they feel like that day or is most convenient to them? I, I think that's largely true. We, we do find in the papers a, a few trends. Uh, we do find, for example, that uh, they mostly reject uh, using uh, originally expected applications, so trying to confine uh, the the meaning of the constitution to just a few specific cases that could have been envisioned at the at the time of its enactment, and and that uh, has been rejected by almost all originalists in the U.S. and the Supreme Court seems to largely reject that as well. Uh, 
except in uh, Section 96 cases about the jurisdiction of the superior courts, somewhat oddly. Um, so you can you can figure out a few trends like that, but it is largely true that uh, they are inconsistent and uh, that leaves them open, rightly or not, but certainly leaves them open to the suspicion that they pick uh, their interpretive approach on any given day simply because it suits and, and it will lead them to the result that they want to reach. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll speak to you again, um, either back in Canada or from down from uh, down in New Zealand. Thank you very much, Landy. Thank you, Joanna. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. If so, please subscribe to Ronnie Mead Radio. Um, and or leave a review on iTunes, uh, which is helpful to us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Barron, J-O-B-E-A-R-O-N. The Running Mead Society's handle is uh, Running Mead Sock, Running Mead S-O-C. You can also see what we've been up to and what we have planned on our website, www.runningmeadsociety.ca. Until next time. Mm-hmm.